descriptions of people that have houses or fields and that choose to sell them, do they or do they not lose them perpetually? The broad rule is if you sell something, it comes back to you in the Jubilee year, in the Yovel year, once in every 50 years. But not everything comes back. Some things are sold perpetually, and some things come back in the Yovel Jubilee year, and it depends on various conditions, as we discussed yesterday and as we are continuing today. So we are in chapter 25. We're up to verse 29. If a man shall sell a resident's house in a walled city, its redemption shall be until the end of the year of its sale, its period of redemption shall be days. So this situation we're discussing is not a field but a house. It's your house, and it's in a city with a wall. A walled city is viewed differently as a city without a wall. So you have the option of redeeming it, meaning I sold it, and I, my financial situation got better, and I want it back. It's my ancestral home. The guy says, I, I bought it from you. I moved my stuff in. I paid all my moving expenses. I decorated it. I repainted it. I put up my pictures. I don't want to leave. I don't want to have to look for another home. I have a year in which I can buy it back, and he has to give it to me. One year. Rashi says, what do we mean by a walled city? A city that was surrounded by a wall from the days of Joshua. Meaning a walled city means a city walled in the time when the Jews entered Israel. So if it currently has a wall but didn't have a wall then, it's not considered the laws of a walled city. Now why do we have to specify this idea? that he has exactly one year, because it's different from the law of a field. Because the law of a field is almost opposite. Meaning a law of a field, if you had a field which you sold and want to redeem, you have to wait two years until you're allowed to redeem it. You sold the field to someone, they get two years stress-free. You cannot say you want it back for the first two years. They invested their time and their labor and whatever they did, they have two years where you can't buy it back. After the two years, you can buy it back at any time until the Yovel, until the Jubilee year. But the house in the walled city is the opposite. You have a year to redeem it, and after that year, you can't redeem it. And the verse ends, it's created of redemption shall be days, which Rashi explains means the days of a year, as another verse states it similarly. But if it is not redeemed until its full year has elapsed, then the house that is in the city that has a wall shall be established in perpetuity to the one who purchased it for his generation. It shall not go out in the Yovel, the Jubilee year. Which means your personal house in the walled city, you had a year to redeem it. You did it. You didn't have the money for it. You didn't care enough then. Five years elapsed. Ten years elapsed. You want it. It's been in your family for generations. Sorry. If the guy wants it, he can only sell it back to you. But you have no right to it. Well, the Oval's coming. The Jubilee's coming. It doesn't make a difference. Your house is not returning to you in the Jubilee year. It is no longer year, yours. Now, Rashi comments here, if you're looking in the Hebrew, there's a concept called a kriuksiv. Kriuksiv means that sometimes we have how the Torah is supposed to be written, and then we have the tradition of how we read it. How it's supposed to be written is the more inner dimension of it, and how we read it is what makes more sense contextually. So in this situation, we're talking here about a house in a walled city, right? So 
So it says, and the house which is in the city, Asher Lo Choma. Lo is written with an Aleph, which means not, which would translate the house in the city that doesn't have a wall. But that's how it's written. How we read it is Lo with a Vav, which means to it is a wall. So what we're reading, which, so to speak, doesn't make sense in our context, a house in a non-walled city. But we know we're talking about a house in a walled city. We read it like it would be normative to us, the house in the city that has a wall. But it's written, the house that's in the city that does not have a wall. So what do we learn from that? Well, it's written in a way that's not fitting with what we understand as a specific storyline. So Rashi says that the rabbis say that it's spelled this way to teach us that even if Lohoma now currently it does not have a wall, but it had a wall, because again, we said we view cities as walled if the wall existed from the time of Joshua. So what we're now finding out is if it was a wall in the time of Joshua, but the wall was destroyed 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 500 years ago, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't have a wall now, but it had a wall then. Still, go home. We view it as a walled city, and the law of a walled city applies. Which... It's interesting because really grammatically this whole thing is a little bit different than we'd assume because city is a word in the feminine. Hebrew is a language that has gender and city, ear, is a feminine word, which would mean it shouldn't say law at all to him is a wall. It should have said law, which to her is a wall. But since the verse wanted to bring out this other nuance of meaning, which doesn't currently have a wall but had in the past, therefore it uses the masculine form in the reading of it, loy, lamed vav, which to him is a wall, so we can fit the negation of the wall with the reading meaning of the text, which to it is a wall. So this, this concept, very deep idea of how we're really getting here two levels of God's will here. The deeper level, what's written, and the more external level, the one that makes more sense to us conceptually, what's read. So on the red level, a city, a house in a city, which has to it a wall. And on the deeper level, a house in a city, which does not have a wall, meaning it had one previously but doesn't have one now, we still have the same laws applying. And this house, we said, does not go out in the jubilee year, meaning you don't get it back. And it says on this that uh, the reason why this is stated where we already understood this principle, why does it have to be stated again so emphatically is because even if you sold it within the year of the Jubilee year, so you think, oh, the first year I have the right to buy it back, and the first year is the Jubilee year because six months after I sold it is the Jubilee year, so for sure I get it back. No, you don't. You don't get it back. Now we're going to go to a different situation. And the houses of the yards meaning, which have no surrounding wall, shall be considered like the fields of the land, it shall have redemption in it, it shall go out in the in the, in the Jubilee year. So everything we spoke until now was in a city that was walled since the times of Joshua, when the Jews entered Israel. If it is or is not walled now, it's irrelevant. Like, for example, Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. Since originally there was a wall around it, the inner old city of Jerusalem, of Yerushalayim, so those houses are considered walled, you have a year to buy it back. After that year, you lost it. But if it's in an unwalled city, uh, we could say open town, without walls, then 
this is considered like a field because the city is not walled. So you have the option of always redeeming it, and you have the option, if you didn't redeem it, that in the Yovel year, in the Jubilee year, you get it back. Now, actually, we see here, as Rashi points out, that this house, so to speak, the, the seller has the best deal. Because we said the field, if you sold your field, for the first two years, you can't redeem it, and then you can redeem it until the Jubilee year, and if you didn't redeem it, you get it back anyway. But there's two years you can't redeem it. If it was a house in a walled city, the first year you can redeem it, right away, but if you don't redeem it, you're stuck and you can never redeem it and it's not come back to the Jubilee year. But the house in the unwalled city, so to speak, has both advantages. You can redeem it right away, like a house in a walled city, and you can always redeem it, like the fields. Unlike the house in the walled city, you can redeem it from when you sold it until the Jubilee year, and if you don't redeem it, you get it back in the Jubilee year. And obviously in the Jubilee year, you get it back without attainment. And the cities of the Levites, the houses and the cities of their ancestral heritage, the Levites will have an eternal redemption. Now we're talking about a very specific subcategory. So now we've sketched out the basic principles. A field, a house in a walled city, a house in an unwalled city. The field, you wait two years, and then you can redeem it and get it back in the Jubilee year. The house in the walled city, you have a year to redeem it, otherwise it's gone. The houses in the unwalled cities, you can redeem it right away, and you can redeem it until the Jubilee year, year, and then you get it back for free. The Levite cities are viewed differently. There are 48 cities that were given to the Levites. And this is originally, when, when the Jews entered Israel, they were given 48 cities throughout Israel. If, at a certain point, they acquired another city, it doesn't count. We're only talking about these original 48 cities. And they can redeem it immediately. We don't have to wait the two years. And they can always redeem it it never becomes the absolute property of the buyer, as is the non-Levite that sells his house in the walled city. Now, this doesn't only apply to their houses. It also applies to the inner field around their cities, meaning the Levites were given 2,000 amounts of land around the wall of these 48 cities. Of the 2,000 almost, the outer 1,000 almost was for cultivation, was for growing things. So these 2,000 almost, this almost, are like, on one hand, they're fields. But they're viewed differently in that they can redeem it forever and they can redeem it immediately. So again, the fields of the Levites are viewed just as the houses of the Levites. So here the Levites can redeem it immediately. They can redeem it forever, this house and their field within these 2,000 amas. And if they don't redeem it, they get it back in the Jubilee year. As the next verse says, and if one will buy from the Levites the selling of a house and the city of his ancestral heritage shall go out in the Yovel in the Jubilee year, the houses of the Levite cities, that is their ancestral heritage among the children of Israel. So we're being told here that the law of houses for Levites 
even meaning these are houses in cities with walls, but they're different than the regular Jewish houses because for the Levites, their houses is like their, their inheritance. They didn't get large tracts of land like the rest of the Jews did. Their, their ancestral heritage is their house. So therefore, if they sell it, even though it's in a walled city, it never becomes a real absolute property of the buyer like it would for a house sold from a walled city of a regular Jew. And he can redeem it right away. And he can redeem it forever. And he gets it back in the Jubilee year. And also his field. He can redeem it right away. He can redeem it forever. And he gets it back in the Jubilee year. There are two ways Rashi looks at this sort of hard-to-understand phrase, Asher Yigal Min Halavim. Asher Yigal Min Halavim. Because literally, yigal, geula, means redeem. And if he redeems it from the Levites, it doesn't really make sense so easy to understand it as redemption. So the first way Rashi understands it, as I just explained it, is that the word yigal here is like the idea of the sale, the transaction that we're discussing with the laws I just explained. There's an alternative way Rashi explains it. Of course, both are true, where it more literally means redemption. And he explains this phrase to mean the Levites will have an eternal redemption. Well, we already know that. We already discussed that in the previous verse. What are we adding here? So Rashi's saying what's added here is, I might think that this whole law, this whole special exemption for Levites, is only if a Levite sold his house or his field to a regular Jew. And Levites have a special privilege because they have so little. But what if a Levite sold his house to another Levite? Which would make the most sense. Those would be the ones that want to live in these cities. Does the special exemption still apply? And this phrase, our rabbis announced, says yes. Even if a Levite sold his house to a Levite, there's still the redemption from the Levite. And he always gets his house back. And then the next phrase there, and it goes out from the sale of the house, means, and if in the Jubilee year, the Levite never redeemed his house, never redeemed his field, it could, unlike the house of the Israelite who loses his house, in the walled city, the Levite always gets his house back in the Yovo, in the Jubilee year. Because this is where they live. They don't have fields, they don't have vineyards like the regular Jews. They have these houses and this 2,000 amas of ground around the cities. So that's why since the cities to the Levites are in place of the fields, their redemption is like the fields and they never, they never lose it. They always get it back in the Jubilee year. But the fields of the open lands of the cities may not be sold for the eternal heritage for them. Now, what is this talking about? So this is also a special exemption the Levites have, and this is actually referring to a law, a certain clause, where we see how a Jew could actually lose his, his property perpetually, meaning the law is, well, even if you sold it, you always get it back in the Yovel year. So even if you were right now very strapped for cash, you sold it, you know, the Jubilee year is coming in five years and 20 years. Eventually, your, your family can get this property back, except the time when you don't. And that is if you dedicated your field to the temple, you want to give a gift to God. What's the biggest gift you can give? Your land, because that's your eternal heritage. It, now, what, is, what does the temple do with, with, with a field? Well, they sell it. So you dedicated your field to the temple. The temple sold it. Now, if you had redeemed it before the temple sold it, you got it back. But if you didn't redeem it and the temple sold it, you lost it. 
it's not considered yours anymore. That's why it's such an amazing. When I whenever I think of this law, it's like always awes me that someone would do this because this is truly perpetually giving away their land. You dedicate to the temple. Maybe you dedicated planning on buying it back, but didn't have the money, or maybe you really just want to give God this enormous gift. You did not buy it back. The temple sold it. What happens in the Jubilee year? This person that bought it gets to keep it. You're never allowed to keep the fields. No. The buyer doesn't keep it, but it doesn't go back to the original owner. It goes back to the temple. And whoever are in that watch of priests during the time of the Jubilee year, when it first begins and all the properties go back, the priests of that watch divide these fields. So the Israelite lost his field forever. But what we're saying here is this law does not apply to a Levite. Therefore, if the Levite so wanted to dedicate a gift to God and he gave his field to the temple and he didn't buy back, the temple sold it, and it comes in Jubilee year, when the field reverts, it doesn't revert back to the temple, it reverts back to the Levite, to the original owner. So that was as far as we go in these laws. And now we're going on to different laws. If your brother becomes impoverished and his hand falters in your proximity, you shall hold on to him, the convert and resident, so that he can live with you. So we're talking about someone who's becoming poorer and poorer, and we're told, strengthen him. Don't allow him to decline and fall, because if someone completely falls, it's very hard to pick him up. Strengthen him when you see he's starting to get worse, just like if we have a burden on a donkey. If the donkey's standing and the burden's starting to slip, one person can grab hold of it and fix it in the donkey's. If it fell to the ground, if it fell to the ground, he might need five people to fix it. And this applies not only to the Jew, but also to the convert or to the resident. So a convert, we understand, wasn't meant by a resident. A resident is a non-Jew who accepts not to worship idols. In other words, generally, he's keeping the seven laws of Noah, but he can still eat unslaughtered carcasses. He doesn't have to keep kosher. He's not Jewish. But that person which we call technically a ger taisha, is not considered like a regular non-Jew. He has a much more elevated stature. And that person we also have to help, the same way we have to help the Jew, the same way we have to help the convert. We have to help the ger taisha and make sure he doesn't fall completely. Do not take from him interest and increase, and you shall have fear of your God, and let your brother live with you. So these two words, there's two words in Hebrew, neshach and sarvis, we're translating as interest and increase, which our rabbis consider the same thing. So why does the Torah use two words? But if you do charge interest, you just transgress two negative commandments. It says you should fear your God. Why do we bring in this idea of fearing God suddenly here and talking about don't taking interest? Because people like taking interest, and it's hard to not. And people say, oh, you know, I have a right to take interest because I could have earned money from my money, but instead of earning money from my money, I lent it to someone else, so I should earn some money from it. So therefore, it's, it's very tempting to do it. You sort of justify to yourself. So therefore, Torah says, fear God. That's one way of understanding it. Also, another way of understanding it is that sometimes people want to like try to find a loophole. So he makes some deal and claims that his money is not his money. It's a non-Jew's money. Because, of course, a non-Jew could lend his money to a Jew with interest. So this Jew is becoming some type of spurious partner with a non-Jew in order to be able to take interest from a Jew. So this is something that maybe people wouldn't be able to prove. This is something very much in your heart and in your thoughts. 
So we're saying, fear God. You know, don't try to play games here. Fear God. And the last verse, I am God, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt to give to you the land of Canaan to be a God to you. Why are we saying this here? So we're actually going to explanations. One, when in Egypt, I distinguish between the Egyptian firstborn and not firstborn. So the same way I can distinguish and know exactly who's lending his money and claiming it belongs to a non-Jew and not. Like, don't try to play games. The other way of understanding is, I took it out of the land of Egypt on condition to accept upon yourself my commandments, even if it's hard. But I understand it's very difficult to not charge interest. I understand it's frustrating. I understand I need the money. But I took it out of Egypt on that condition. And I'm giving you the land of Canaan as a reward for accepting my commandments. And to be your God, why do we connect it to your God? Because it's, I say to say, whoever resides in the land of Israel, it's like I'm his God. Whoever leaves it, it's like someone who is worshiping idols.